Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to Tune In, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and I'm here today with Joel Berkowitz, director of the Sam and Helen Stahl Center for Jewish Studies and professor of foreign languages and literature at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. An historian of the Yiddish theater and translator of Yiddish drama, he has edited and co-edited numerous books on Yiddish theater and is the author of Shakespeare on the American Yiddish Stage. He is the co-founder with Deborah Kaplan of the Digital Yiddish Theater Project. Joel is joining us today to talk about the work of artist Felix Limbersky. The traveling exhibit, Felix Limbersky, Soviet Form, Jewish Context opens in the Yiddish Book Center's Breckner Gallery on October 19th and will be on view through March 2.15. Jewish artist Felix Limbersky was born in 1913 in Lublin, Poland. He died in Leningrad in 1970. Limbersky's work um, melded realist and modernist forms, creating emotionally charged images and metaphors. Welcome, Joel. Thank you very much, Lisa. It's great to be with you. Um, well, we're delighted that you're here today. And um, I know that this exhibit is um, the result of a lot of work um, on um, the by Yelena Lembersky, um, who really wanted to bring her grandfather's art back into the public eye, and that this was realized in this traveling exhibit, which I gather has been to London, um, other cities in the U.S., and is now on view at the Yiddish Book Center in our Breckner Gallery. And I'm wondering, how did you become aware of Limbersky's work, and, and what's your involvement in the exhibit? I became aware of Limbersky's work um, because of a fortuitous meeting with Elena a few years ago at the annual Conference of the Association for Jewish Studies, the AJS. Yelena mm -hmm. uh, was there. It was in, in Boston, where she's based, and um, she was giving uh, a, a sort of um, it was sort of uh, a, a poster sessions sorts of things, not not a, a formal paper. Uh, and so I was passing through and was struck by some of the images up on the screen, and we started talking, um, and. I found the work very interesting, and I found Yelena very interesting, and we just started a, a conversation about it. And because of my interest, uh, as you said, I mean, I'm, I'm a theater historian, not an art historian, but maybe in another life I, I would have been an art historian or would have liked to be. So um, uh, I'm, I'm very interested in art and, and of course, Eastern European um, Jewish art and culture generally. Um, so, as you said, Yelena has been working very hard to get her grandfather's work um, to be better known, um, and deservedly so. Uh, so she, at some point in that conversation, said, you know, um, we're, we're having some exhibits done in different places. Uh, any chance that this might be done in Milwaukee? Now, at that time, I think that was my first year in Milwaukee, or maybe second, and um, we have a Jewish museum in Milwaukee. It's not primarily an art museum, actually, but um, I said, no, maybe there, there could be ways to do this. So I started talking to them, and they were very excited about it. And ultimately, that led to an exhibit of his work um, at the Jewish Museum Milwaukee uh, that um, I co-curated with Molly Dubin at that museum, um, it was in partnership with my center, and it was, and it was called Felix Lembeski's Soviet Form Jewish Context, which, if I remember correctly, is actually the same um, name that you're giving it. Is, is that right? Yes. 
uh, and because um, different configurations of Limbersky's work are, are um, being um, exhibited at, at different places at Pushkin House in London, at, at some other university galleries, etc. Um, and obviously, I was very pleased to hear uh, that the that the center has taken an interest and is uh, doing an exhibit as well. Um, so everything just sort of lined up nicely, uh, and um, we uh, our exhibit ran from. Uh, March, uh, mid-March of last year uh, to um, of, of 2013 to July of 2013. Um, so, tell us a little bit. How would how would you describe his work for those who are listening and can't see it in front of them? Mm, uh, that that's challenging. Um, and and also, I mean, you know, and I ask that question also um, in terms of context. Um, you know, what defines Soviet art? What were the constraints? And and how does the subject matter um, play into his his oeuvre? Yeah. Um, well, to, I think part of part of the way I can um, describe his art is is by way of uh, describing his training a little bit. Um, he. Um, as you said, he was born in Lublin in Poland. Um, his family um, moved to uh, Berdychev uh, in 1914. Um, he spent, uh, and, and so of course that's on, uh, it, it's just before the Soviet Union comes into being. Um, his, so, so most of his lifespan is, uh, is uh, during Soviet times, and, and he spends most of his life in the Soviet Union. Um, he... Uh, in uh, so he's born in 1913. Um, in uh, 1933, he enrolls at the Kiev State Art Institute. A couple of years later, at the Russian Academy of Arts, um, where he would ultimately graduate in 1941. Of course, in wartime, um, with honors, um, very very high praise uh, from his teachers uh, for his his skill. Um, he was always highly regarded for his integrity as an artist, um, for his his uh, portraits. Um, he, he paints many portraits, and um, and they show a great deal of compassion for the, the people that he paints, um, many of whom are, um, I think, very much in, in sort of in line with um, Soviet uh, thinking or, or ordinary people whom he dignifies um, with, uh, with very respectful uh, portraits. Um, and um, during the war, um, he, he is in Leningrad at the beginning. Um, there's a horrible, uh, very long, almost three-year siege of Leningrad. He's evacuated uh, in 1942, gets out into the countryside um, to a town called Nizhny Tagil, um, where he, he really falls in love with the people and, and paints, um, um, paints sort of cityscape, or sort of really like factoryscapes, you might call them, and and uh, some landscapes and, and portraits. Um, he returns there uh, at another point, too. Um, and over the course of his career, he really starts very much as a, a, a realist artist. Um, he, his, his early uh, works, and even some of them into mid-career, are um, highly representational, uh, highly detailed. Um, he will... Uh, he'll play around with this over time and become um, somewhat more abstract, never completely abstract, um, but he'll play around a lot um, into the, particularly in the 60s, in the last decade of his career and his life, uh, with uh, various geometric forms that will suggest perhaps 
a human figure or perhaps a an animal or a tree or something like that, um, but that are open to a lot of different interpretations. And actually, this really pushed against um, some of the of the thinking. This was a time um, after the so-called thaw in the Soviet Union, where 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 Stalin had died and had really been much of of Stalin's way of doing things had been repudiated uh, by Khrushchev and. There was a bit more freedom uh, to do things, but not completely open-ended. And Lembeski really stuck his neck out and um, rubbed some of the authorities the wrong way. But the combination of this no longer being the sort of thing that was going to automatically get you sent to the gulag or even killed, um, and also that he had so much support and respect from fellow artists that I wouldn't say he was untouchable, um, but he was largely kind of left alone and allowed to say and do the things that he wanted to do. Um, and uh, you, you asked about uh, constraints, which I just touched on. Um, one, of, one of the famous um, phrases uh, that, that came up in the, in the Stalinist era uh, regarding the, the creation of, uh, of any kind of art um, was that it should be national in form and socialist in content. And what that meant was that the, the, the Soviet sort of cultural authorities were very savvy about how to indoctrinate the, the public. Um, they, they had this um, insight that you can't just sort of go to all of these ethnic and religious groups of, of which there are countless numbers in, in this vast new empire, um, and tell them to just sort of throw out all of their traditions. If you're trying to move them from, let's say, uh, belief in religious traditions to adherence to the state, um, if you just say, okay, Jews, for example, um, and their equivalents in many other uh, cultures, mm -hmm. um, no more Passover. This Passover stuff is so backwards and all this stuff about God and a mighty arm and an out, uh, out, mighty hand and outstretched arm. Um, that needs to go now. This this Haggadah um, business needs to go. Here's a Soviet script for you instead. What they did was they married the the Soviet script to the specific ethnic or religious form, so that um, they created Reuter um, Haggadahs, red Haggadot or Haggadahs um, that would. Um, use the format of the Passover Seder, but the content would be about how the Bolsheviks rescued the, the people from what the terrible things that would have happened under the Mensheviks and, of course, under the capitalists. So that's one example of how you could, you could basically kind of layer Soviet ideology onto the pre-existing um, structures that were out there in these communities um, and guide people in, in the way that you wanted. So, so they, in some ways, suppressed certain subject matters, which would, in this case, include um, Jewish themes in his work, yes? Uh, yes and no. And that, that's one of the really interesting things. I think when we, when we look at that, I mean, first of all, um, it's, it's important to keep in mind that there's not a monolithic um, Soviet way of, of doing things. If you look at what's happening 
in the 1920s versus uh, in the, the, the 30s to the 50s when Stalin is in power uh, versus after that. Um, and then within um, various parts of those periods, um, it, they're not always the same rules. And the rules, essentially, they, they, they harden significantly under Stalin. There's a tremendous amount of freedom uh, at, at the very beginning of, of the Soviet Union um, when those orthodoxies hadn't really settled in yet. And, and I mean, that's partly why we see the sort of previous generation of people like Chagall. Um, there's a much greater freedom. I mean, also Chagall got out of the Soviet Union very early, and so when he's off in Paris, of course, he doesn't have to adhere to those things anymore. Um, but even for, for people like Lembersky, who's essentially his entire life, almost his entire life, is, is in the Soviet Union, and certainly his entire life as a Soviet artist is in the Soviet Union. The, even within any period, even within the Stalinist period, and, and most of his career is also um, taking place then, the, the, the rules aren't... Uh, there, there's something of a moving target, uh, so that you, you kind of know that there are certain places that you shouldn't be going as an artist, and that's whether you're a painter or a musician or a writer or whatever. Um, but you, you don't know for sure. And, of course, you know, there's no guarantee that, you know, you, you, can, you can be the most um, loyal Stalinist. Um, you can be a poet like it's Ekfefa, the Yiddish poet, who, some of whose poems, you know, we look at now, and, and I, I certainly find, you know, I kind of cringe when you see these, these sort of odes to uh, to Brother Stalin, um, and I'll, and in the end that didn't protect uh, Pfeffer. Uh, that that wasn't a kind of get out of jail free card that meant that Stalin isn't isn't going to touch you um, because Stalin is endlessly paranoid and uh, and uh, and there's a whole uh, system of of terror that we're we're very familiar with. So there's no guarantee that you're not going to get in trouble and that something that you did as an artist might just be the excuse for arresting you and doing terrible things to you. Um, but obviously, you're not going to, if you have any sense, you're not going to bend over backwards and court trouble. So if you're an Itzik Pfeffer, um, you'll, you'll write a poem about how, um, you know, I laugh when I think that my ancestors were rabbis. I find that really amusing. Here I am, this, uh, this bold new Soviet citizen. You're not going to write about how Bob and Zeta um, lit the Shabbos candles, and this was such a wonderful experience. That's just not going to fly, even if you were so reckless and naive as to try to write something like that. Who's going to publish it? Your editor uh, probably wants to keep his head attached to his shoulders also. Uh, so those kinds of things aren't going to see the light of day. But between those extremes of... Um, hooray for Brother Stalin! Thank God, no, not thank mm -hmm. God he's looking out for us. Uh, that uh, you know, thank uh, thank Stalin that he's looking out for us. And um, I am, I, I cherish Jewish tradition. There's a certain amount of wiggle room, um, and Soviet artists found all kinds of ways, just as as, as artists have always done under um, under oppressive regimes, under regimes that censored them in some ways. Artists and their audiences have been very good at getting around those kinds of things and speaking to each other in code. Now, doesn't mean it always works. Doesn't mean that people won't necessarily see through some of those things and suspect that there may be something going on, and that's part of the danger. Um, but 
It's part uh, of the tradition of art, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. Art, art, art is dangerous, and and you know when you're, um, if if you're uh, particularly if you if you want to run a totalitarian totalitarian state, um, then you're probably going to keep a really close eye on the artists and the intellectuals and make sure uh, that they they don't cause trouble and either you know round them up or send them away or keep them under lock and key or whatever. Um, so Lemberski, I mean. Lem- Having said all of that, it's it's not that Lemberski was this renegade who's looking to upend Soviet orthodoxies and he's looking to slip in Jewish content at every turn. Um, one thing to be said is that a, a lot of his material, um, I, I I I wouldn't see any any sort of particularly Jewish content in it at all. When he sits a, a miner from the Urals down. Um, and does a portrait of him, uh, and I have I have in mind a a, a a specific painting he painted a number of miners, um, but there's um, there's a miner named Sharafeyev, so he names him in the painting, um, and uh, and does this really lovely portrait. Now this is a man with uh, with dark skin. Um, he's fairly clearly not Jewish. Um, and, and also the fact that he's a minor means that he's pretty unlikely to be Jewish, and, and this, is, uh, this is in the Urals where there are hardly any Jews. Um, and so when he does a portrait, I, I wouldn't call that a, a, a Jewish painting. Um, it's, it's a painting by an artist who happens to be Jewish. But when Lemberski paints uh, paintings, well, for, first of all, I mean, I think the most obvious subject matter that is um, necessarily Jewish that jumps out at you are the three paintings that he did of the massacre at, at Babi Yar, right. uh, uh, which are which are really striking, really powerful. We had one of those uh, in the uh, in the Milwaukee exhibit, um, and um, and now not only Jews were killed at, at Babi Yar, but the, the first wave of tens of thousands of people um, were Jewish, um, and. This is a you know this this is a, a well known um, tragedy and a massacre uh, and so um, this is something that is uh, is Lemberski taking uh, you know, taking on very directly uh, an, an episode from at least what we would call the the Nazi Holocaust of, of the Jews. The Soviets have different terminology for that, and so even that becomes a little bit problematic potentially because the Soviet sensibility tends to be, well, we're not going to talk about the, the Jews as victims. We'll talk about Soviet victims because, of course, um, you know, so Soviet citizens suffer terribly um, under Nazi invasion and, and, and in the war. Um, so there's just there's this very different terminology to begin with. Um, but, but Lembeski takes on Babiar several times, and in other paintings of his over over time we see some emblems that 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 suggest now it's not definitive but but suggest the holocaust for example the the shovels that we see uh, people holding in in these Babi Yar paintings clearly the, the Jews have been digging their own graves and they're uh, the, the people who are uh, in these paintings are we, we know, um, looking at them now, you know, they're about to be massacred. They're about to be in these graves. A, a few, in, there, there are even a few that either that are already dead or dying before the machine gunning has started. So those same shovels will then appear in the hands of, let's say, 
um, coal miners walking in the background of, of other paintings. Um, now, you could say, you know, sometimes a, a pipe is just a pipe and sometimes a shovel is just a shovel, but in the context of his career, I think there's a very strong case to be made that the, the echoes of the Holocaust are kind of marching through uh, some of those other paintings that aren't, um, are, aren't on the surface, obviously, paintings about the Holocaust. And I think it's true to say that, um, you know, having seen the works that I've, I've looked at, that his work is a reflection of his environment. I mean, he paints the landscape that's familiar to him. He paints the people that he finds in his everyday life. Um, mm -hmm. And he paints them beautifully um, in a style that would be, you know, um, paralleling that contemporary style, it sort of de-evolves, as you say, into a somewhat more expressionist style in its mm -hmm. later years, but it's still um, representative, representational enough that mm -hmm. you know what the subject matter is. But it's it's interesting that then he brings a little bit something else to it. And the other, the other question I had, Joel, is that um, Yelena, in an interview that she's just done with us for Pocket Trigger, our magazine, um, she suggests that he had two avenues that he could have pursued. He could have become a Soviet court artist, mm -hmm. um, which would have brought him, as she said, you know, um, the associated comforts, wealth, privileges, et cetera, that come with that. But mm -hmm. he really made a choice to become um, a an artist who would find his way um, in the world and paint what he chose to paint. And, and mm -hmm. he, you know, he paid a price for that in terms of probably the comfort and the lifestyle he enjoyed, but he also was able to pick the subject matter, yes? That, that's absolutely true. Uh, and Yelena has said in, in, um, in, in the beautiful book that uh, she put together and, and contributed a, an essay to about him um, that, uh, you know, he, he, he just walked away from a number of those very prestigious um, projects early on that were state-sponsored, you know, various murals and things, that his heart just clearly wasn't in it. Uh, he wanted to do other things, and absolutely, he could have, um, he could have been in that circle of, of painters whose work he pretty openly despised, actually, and you know, talked about as, as kitsch and, and just as sort of embarrassing, um, that... Uh, uh, that he he just walked away from that and wanted to do something very different and absolutely in in material terms certainly he paid a price for that um, he that that um, you know that that interest in in the world around him that you mentioned is is evident from very early on um, from um, the uh, the thesis painting that he did. Um, at the Russian Academy of Arts, uh, which is called Strike at the Urals uh, Plant, um, that I mentioned his, uh, his advisors, uh, the, the sort of evaluating committee praised so highly. Um, it, it, it's, it's very, uh, you know, it, it shows someone who's just been injured in a factory, um, people gathering around them, and, it, and it's deeply uh, sympathetic to the lives of ordinary workers, and that's something that will run um, through all of, of the works that we'll see that, that feature people in them. As you mentioned, there are also, uh, also landscapes. And I, I should make it clear that um, I, th I think, again, if we, if we 
have certain cliches about Soviet life in our head, um, I think that um, we, we tend to, if we think about landscape, we might think um, factories and smokestacks and uh, gray cities and things like that. Um, but the Soviet Union existed in technicolor, just like the rest of the world. And, um, and there, was, there was plenty of beautiful countryside, um, and, and he loved it, and he paints um, some really lovely pictures of the countryside, and he, he, he paints pictures of, of people on holiday. He does uh, a couple of really lovely, very figurative works in the early to mid-50s, and then, um, as we've talked about, sort of make some of these more abstract uh, later on. Um, and, you, and, and there are these great splashes of color, of really bright red house in the middle of a field, and um, you know, a bright blue sky and, and yellow uh, wheat and grasses in the background and, and things like that. So um, it's not all um, seriousness and it's not, it's not all heavy. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a great deal of, of exuberance in his portraits as well, whether they're of ordinary people or, or people like his, his wife and, and daughter whom he painted, um, we see people in very bright clothing. We see another um, older miner with a uh, with, with a, a, a very bushy beard and a, and a cap and a and a very very bright red uh, shirt. Um, we see people in vivid you know yellows and greens and things like that. So there's a, there's a tremendous amount of, of color in many of these works. In contrast to something like the Bobby Yards, which are very muted in, in color. Um, there, the, he uses somewhat different palettes and different Bobby R paintings. There, there's um, you know, sometimes it's just essentially browns and grays and uh, maybe some some greens. And there's the the, the Bobby R that we exhibited here um, actually has a bright blue sky, um, but other that that's really kind of in um, sh- sort of shocking contrast to what is going on in the rest of the painting and to the to the the color scheme, the rest of the painting. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I was, um, I was drawn to the fact that he, it's interesting. Some of the paintings are sober and some of the paintings are exuberant. And I think it's, he finds what he finds um, and he paints it. Um, as you say, mm-hmm. like the later works, I, I imagine that they're the later works, which you referred to the the vivid reds and the oranges, and there's one portrait which has this amazing sort of um, yellowish mustard background, which is just wonderful. Um, yeah, so he he does sort of get into the subject and celebrates them or presents them in different ways, but it yeah, there's a large arc to it. There, uh, is, there is a large arc, yeah, um, absolutely. Um, so. Um, Anything that you would add to the conversation just in terms of, um, you know, sort of the curation of the exhibit so that it represents that broad scope of his work? One of the things that I was, um, you know, as I was thinking back to the, the exhibit that we did here and, and the, the selection of, of paintings that, that we made, which, which I'd say was partly dictated. I mean, there were at least a couple of, of paintings. I mean, we, we were very fortunate, and Yelena was wonderful to work with, and we were largely able to choose the ones. I mean, there are, there are many to choose from. Um, the, the, the Yelena and her mother don't have absolutely everything that he did. There's some that are just, um, you know, no one knows uh, where, where they may be or if they, if they still uh, exist. But um, they, 
tremendous collection of his work, and, and we were able to choose fairly freely. Um, we, we included some works on paper. Um, he, uh, did, times were very tough. You know, we, we, uh, we, we might, you know, na- now even a fairly struggling artist can kind of stroll into the local art supply store and um, buy what he or she wants to, uh, to, to paint or draw on. Um, but, um, but resources were very scarce, uh, particularly during the war. And, and, uh, and Lembeski was very resourceful about what he, you know, he basically kind of painted, painted and drew on just about everything that he could find. And so you see kind of really interesting scraps of paper that clearly had some other purpose before, you know, a shopping list or something that he then um, put some kind of a drawing over. Um, so we had a mixture of works on paper and, uh, and a number of paintings of, of different sorts and different sizes. Um, one of, one of the, the things that uh, a couple of my favorite uh, paintings in the exhibit and a couple of my favorite of Lembeski's paintings um, are, are paintings that um, I would call, he doesn't call them uh, shtetl scenes, um, but I, I, I would, I would um, use that word. Uh, one of the things that I was struck by is that when we, a, a lot of his uh, his, his paintings of of cities and factories and and uh, and, and places out in the country um, are you know the place is named he'll say you know uh, boats on Lake Ladoga or um, a, a factory in Nizhny Tagil that sort of thing um, he has some others where he doesn't name the place and I, I had a thought I can't prove this but I. I like to think that, that part of why he doesn't name some of those places, for example, a really intriguing uh, painting of his called um, By a Fence, or By the Fence, because Russian doesn't have articles, so it could be either one, from 1963-64. Uh, um, another one from right around then called Household Store. Um, we, we see these, uh, these, these houses and fences, uh, these, these lovely little... Um, uh, kind of idyllic uh, scenes of a, of, of a town or, or village. Um, and I, I find it interesting that he doesn't situate those in a particular town. Now, if he did, um, presumably those, these are places in the Urals. Again, this is, this is very non-Jewish space. And I think if he, if he doesn't name, if he doesn't attach those paintings to a particular place in the Soviet Union, which is literally beyond the pale. Uh, you know, that, that term comes from mm-hmm. the Pale of Settlement, and that's where, that's where the Jews are in the Russian Empire, um, and it changes a bit in the Soviet Union, but when we're talking about places out in the Urals, um, this is not a place where there are many Jews, and this is not what we associate with the towns and, and cities of you know, Sholem Aleichem and Mendel and people like that. Um, and so I... I I had this thought that perhaps he's giving them a, a kind of universality of place. And when he says buy a fence, this could be a fence just about anywhere. This household store uh, could be just about anywhere. Um, and we see these scenes where, again, um, there are subtle, um, or depending on how you look at it, maybe not so subtle Jewish elements. For example, um, the, the gate uh, on a fence that... I don't think you have to bend over backwards to see um, the, the figure of a Torah scroll 
um, that that the the gate is essentially double doubling as a Torah scroll. Um, there are things like that that he puts in, and that goes back to what we were talking about before of of speaking in code. Now, I, I should also add, I haven't said this before, um, it, it, it may or may not be obvious. You know, Lembeski was not a religious Jew. Um, he, you know, his, his family may have been in a, a generation or two before, um, but. It's not as if he's seeing everything in Jewish terms, but at the same time, his Jewish identity is clearly an important piece. It's not the only piece. It's not necessarily the. I mean, I would say the dominant piece of of him is, um, aside from maybe being a a human being and a husband and father, is being an artist, and this was what he was all about. But that Jewish piece of his identity is important, and it and it comes up in interesting ways um, in in his paintings. Um, the uh, I'm going to um, read uh, one sentence of his that, that I, I ended my essay on in our uh, catalog with um, with this. Um, this was in a, a talk in 1960. Um, he said, "I call upon the young people who will come after us to create works that people will want to see again and again, and then after coming home to think about them." And then, having thought about them, say to themselves, I have not seen everything yet. Now, I think that's a really lovely statement about, I mean, he's speaking to people who create such work, so I think it's a wonderful statement to people when we go and, and see art. Mm-hmm. And when you have the opportunity, as, as people will at the book center, to have these paintings in front of you, it's such a stunning experience, you know, having spent many months um, looking at, at reproductions in books and online, and then actually having these these paintings in front of us. Of course, it's 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 very different. And I would urge people to go to the book center and see these paintings, and to look really closely because um, there are there are things that he does in in some of these paintings that are you know you'll see this sort of um, very faint but but distinct. Um, figure of a person um, that that's sort of almost seems to be emerging out of the earth uh, or something like that. It's, it's not someone who's an obvious sort of player in the story that's right in the foreground, but they're there. And so take a really close look and then maybe step away and come back and look again. Um, so I think he, he made a wonderful statement about um, how one should, I would say, view the work of, of any artist who's worth looking at and certainly how, how I would uh, advise people to look at Lembersky's work. Well, thank you, Joel. I, I think it, it is a wonderful way to end the conversation, and um, thank you so much for taking the time to explore the artist with us. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for the conversation. I really enjoyed okay. it. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Tune In, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit our website, YiddishBookCenter.org. Our producer is Sarah Bleichfeld. I'm Lisa Newman. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.